turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 and following. This is uh, one of the parables Jesus told. And this is the one of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Hear God's word beginning in verse 9 of Luke chapter 18. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So ends the reading of God's holy word. Jesus said, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Is change possible? People today are doubtful that anyone can really change. We tend to think people now, these days, are predetermined from birth to be of certain character. In our officer training on Sunday afternoons, we're studying a book by Mark Dever. And in one of the chapters of his book, he observes some of these ideas. He says today that many think that the way of wisdom is just to learn to accept who you are. Adjust to it. Adapt to it. Don't fight it. And certainly don't try to change it. You are who you are, and if you're to live with integrity, then you just need to be who you are. Be true to yourself. The die is cast. The personality is assigned. The leopard does not change his spots. And so we shrug our shoulders and say, well, that's the way it is. We're told maturity comes from facing the truth about ourselves and then resigning ourselves to it. So any suggestion from any source, especially the church, especially the Bible, any suggestion that you can change or should change is regarded with great suspicion. And any suggestion that you should change is regarded as manipulation of someone trying to bend you to do something they want you to do against your will. So whether it today is questioning your vocational path or the ethics by which you live or your sexual preferences or even your religious beliefs, we are who we are, we are told, and therefore we should be glad about it and proud of it. But there's a problem. And for all the suspicion about the possibility of change, ironically, most people still have a deep longing for change. There's restlessness, and there's dissatisfaction with who we are, and we are not content. And so we rearrange the furniture, 
We move to a new house or a new apartment. We lose some weight. We buy some new clothes. If things get worse, we wonder about changing cities, relocating to another place, changing our career path, changing your spouse. And yet, even amidst all the options and choices that people have today, we still often find ourselves defeated, trapped, and hopeless. So are the cynics right? Is any real change possible? And what does the Bible say about real, deep, personal change, what it calls conversion? So radical that an entire person's, person's entire life is changed upside down. We find such an example here in this parable. The setting of this parable, like others, is kind of announced there in verse 9. It gives the reason Jesus tells the parable. Let me just give you another example. Look back at verse 1. It was a parable on prayer, and verse 1 said, He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So often the parable begins with the reason for it being told. With this parable, in verse 9, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. That's very important. It's important to know that's the purpose by which, for which Jesus tells the parable. And it does not say he told it about certain people who trusted in themselves. What does it say? He told this parable, speak to me, to They were the ones that heard it. He's speaking it to the very people that are going to be pointed out in the parable. We meet two people here, Pharisee and the tax collector. If you've been around churches that teach the Bible, then you have been conditioned to see a Pharisee as evil. The violins, the cellos play when he shows up, you know, and he's off in the shadows with wearing all black and scowling at everyone else. But it was not that way. In the eyes of people of that day, the Pharisees were seen as the respectable, good, and decent people, as being religious and moral. They would have been highly regarded. <clears throat> to be a Pharisee in those days was uh, a very limited opportunity, and it was very difficult. At most, in, in, uh, in the nation of Israel, there were only 3,000 at any one time. They were not a political group. They were not a political action group, though they did have great political power since they were held in such high esteem. They were a religious body, and their chief purpose was to observe the most minute points of the Old Testament law. Nicodemus you know about from John chapter 3 was a Pharisee. The Apostle Paul, before his conversion, was a Pharisee. And so this man, though he's not named, he is able to stand in the temple and pray, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, evildoers, adulterers. I tithe all that I get. I fast twice a week. Now here is what is often misunderstood. What he was praying most likely was true. He was not making this up. This man was a religious success. He says he fasted twice a week. Now, that is far more than the Old Testament uh, required. In the ancient law, the people of God were asked to fast once a year on the Day of Atonement. 
But in this man's zealous devotion to his religion, he goes beyond that. From once a year, not only to just once a month, but twice a week, every Monday and Thursday. He denied himself food out of religious devotion. Then he points out that he had tithed. He gave tithes of all that he took in. At least a tenth of his income went to the gifts for the work of the Lord. He was probably more than a tither. This man had lowered his standard of living for his religious devotion. He was deeply committed to his religion. He's even respected by the tax collector who's in the back. Now the tax collector, we meet in verse 10. We've been conditioned to think these were the good guys. You know, the audience applaud. The applaud meter goes up when the tax collector walks on stage. No, it was very different in those days. And there's no comparison with tax collectors in America today. Don't make that. This was completely different. Here's how it worked. Rome sold the right to tax for a certain area to the highest bidder. So, for example, let's say that you bid on the city of Macon. And you wanted the power to tax, to be the tax collector within the city limits of Macon. And so Rome would say, okay, we want X amount. We want $5 million, to use terms like today, from that province in taxes every year. So you would bid. You then would obligate yourself to provide the $5 million back to the Roman government of taxes from that province. But the government did not care how much more you could get beyond that. And typically, the tax collector found that the traffic could bear a whole lot more than what was required. And so extortion was built into the job. That's why they were hated, not so much for the taxes, but because they extorted from people. I've told you before, long ago, when I was in Eastern Europe with some other pastors, and we were traveling from Hungary into Romania at midnight, and we were in two cars, and we, we hit a part of the highway right before we came up to the large checkpoint to go into the well-lit area to go into the country. Then we went through about two miles of just complete pitch dark, and we came around a curve, and these Hungarian policemen were sitting on the hood of their car, and they pulled our cars over. And uh, we didn't understand what was being said in the language, but our driver latest told us, later told us that they came over and they said the tires did not match and the fine would be $70. So the driver paid them and we went on their way. Now, most of history and most of the world functions just that way. They extorted the money. That's what tax collectors did all the time and that's why they were hated. That was the reason for what they did. So he was a traitor all day long. Now, a comparison of the two. If both were running for mayor of Macon, you would be glad to have the Pharisee elected. It's not a bad idea. I mean, if both were courting your sister, you would be pleased to have the Pharisee as a brother-in-law, but not the tax collector. So... That is why it is not so simple to discover why Jesus decides the verdict as he does. Jesus is turning values upside down. 
he is commending the person that everyone else would condemn, and he's condemning the man that everyone else would commend. It is just inverted what he does here. It would have been very confusing to those listening to this for the first time. Both are in the temple. They're not being criticized for being in the temple. Both were praying. They're not criticized for praying. The distinction comes in the prayers of the men. The words of their prayers reveal the attitudes of their heart. Look at the Pharisees' prayer in verse 11. I read it earlier, but as we read it, we get uneasy. I thank you I'm not like other men, extortioners, evildoers, and so forth. I fast. This is what I do. I, I give. I tithe. What upsets us about this man is he's conceited. And we don't like conceit, especially as Southerners. We don't like it. We like our heroes to be modest. And there's no hint of humility. He is looking at his own deeds to give him right standing with God, and he's very confident that that is the case. He's confident in himself. He's confident in his right doing. And there's something inside of each of us that thinks that same way, that somehow if there is a God, then I can appease him by a certain moral code and living by it, by doing certain good things. I told you that's what I believed as a child. I believed it right up until the time I heard the gospel. I think it is the most dangerous lie that the evil one has ever thought up, that you can be good enough to earn God's favor. And so that's what the Pharisee does. He gloats. He is gloating in his self-righteousness. And that's why we don't like it. That's why we're uneasy. We don't like the sin of conceit. Let others dish out words of praise, but not the one who has accomplished them. So conceit has a way of irritating us. If you're a student and you get a C on exam and your friend who sits next to you get an A, it would be nice for them to say, oh, you know, I'm no smarter than you are. I just happen to read the right paragraph. Rather than, man, why don't you go get a tutor or something? You're pathetic. That's not what we want to hear. If you and I go play tennis together and you beat me 6-0, 6-0, and we finish, I'd like to hear, you know, well, you wasn't one of your better days. Um, you know, I could tell you used to play a lot. You're just a little bit out of practice. It'll come back to you. I don't want someone coming over and saying, Miller, I don't know what you were playing, but it wasn't tennis. And don't dare call me again. I've got far better things to do. We like a little modesty. We like a little, we don't like conceit. And that's what he is. So it also makes it worse is not only his attitude, not only what he's praying, but he's standing in the temple when he's doing this. So his problem is pride. One of the symptoms of self-righteousness is a very critical spirit. It's always true. True of us today. And the reason self-righteousness brings with it a very critical spirit toward others is self-righteousness feeds on the comparison of others, of finding yourself superior to others. So there has to be that constant putting others down in order to build yourself up. One writer said, we have a way of cutting other people off at the knees and then putting ourselves up on stilts. And in comparison, we seem tall. So that's what self-righteousness does. It criticizes, it's very condemning of those around it. And so he is an example of grace gone sour. <clears throat> Think of the benefits that this man had enjoyed. Pardon me. <clears throat> the first service is always a struggle. 
from the standpoint of my voice. <clears throat> we were at a church in Atlanta a few weeks ago, and the sermon was an hour long, and it was the first of three services. I don't know how he did it, and he was not soft-spoken. <clears throat> but think of the benefits that this man had enjoyed in God's providence. He had the Pharisee. He had knowledge of Scripture. He had a good environment. He had been taught and educated in the truth. He had been exposed to the things of God. He had the covenant blessings. He had the blessings that some of us had if we were brought up in the church. Some of your children have those now as covenant children. And what a rare blessing when most of the world has none of that. So he had been exposed to God's word. He had been taught and he had been prayed for. He had seen people model what it meant to be a, a person devoted to God. But yet, in spite of that, he's trying to trade his good deeds for God's grace. First of all, he thanked God that he was not a sinner like everyone else. While he was probably not like everyone else, he was mistaken to think he was not a sinner. He compared himself favorably to the tax collector telling himself he didn't cheat people and he hadn't committed adultery. So he's confident of his own righteousness. But at the same time, he's blind to the fact that he despises the tax collector. Even though he's in the temple praying to the same God, he did not welcome the tax collector. He did not bring this person in. He did not commend the tax collector for seeking God. Instead, he gloated on his own righteousness. Get the picture. Now, why is self-righteousness often, why are we typically blind to it? I read a book some time ago by Tom Haverstall entitled Extreme Righteousness. And in one paragraph he said, just because we are followers of Christ does not mean that we, does not mean that we don't tend towards self-righteousness. And he said this was the fatal flaw of the Pharisees. And we rarely see it. And the reason we rarely see it in ourselves is we are blinded by society. In other words, we compare favorably to our peers. Secondly, we're blinded by morality. We tend to think of righteousness as us trying to obey outwardly God's law. Then we can be blinded by religion and think because we practice religious activities and fail to realize religion doesn't transform the heart. And this is the one I think that really gets us. We can be blinded by our knowledge. That we have biblical knowledge. And biblical knowledge can mask the awareness of our own sinfulness. And so one of the dangers of having knowledge of the Bible and great knowledge of the Bible, or a lot accumulated, is that we think because we know the Bible, that therefore we know God. And those two don't necessarily go together at all. Few people have ever known Scripture like the Pharisees. But Jesus pointed out that they did not know God. So we need to know the Word of God in order to know God, but just because we do know the Word of God does not mean that we do know God. So we can be blinded. Okay, look at the prayer of the tax collector. He stands far off. He's beating his breast... He doesn't even look up into heaven. He looks down. And that's interesting because the standard way to pray in those days was with your face up. 
and yet he cannot even bring himself to face up. He keeps beating his breast, saying, O God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's all we have. O God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He recognized that he was a sinner. He is convicted of his sin. And he'd come to the one place where he could find forgiveness. And you may be thinking, well, he should feel guilty about his sin. After all, he was a tax collector. Well, he could have stood there and said, God, I thank you that I'm not like that self-righteous Pharisee up there in the front. I don't pray long prayers in public. I know I've sinned. At least I'm willing to admit it. But here's what's happened. When God's Spirit begins powerfully to work in our hearts, to call us to turn from our sins, there is great conviction and you almost can't stop it. We begin to sense something of the seriousness of sin. Are you with me? It's not as though you become paranoid about every action. That's not what we're talking about. It's not as though you imagine that you've committed sins that you have not committed. What really happens is the Holy Spirit begins to convict you, and often he does that with one particular sin. I've told you as an officer here in the church, when we interview people for church membership, we ask for a brief testimony. That is one of the blessings of being a pastor. I've heard hundreds of testimonies through the years. And it ministers, those meetings minister to me with the variety of how God moves in people's lives in different circumstances, in different places, at different stages of life, some out of tragedy, some when they had the world by its tail, some in great health, some in bad health, some going through a divorce, some everything was perfect, some as a young teenager, others as an older adult in their 70s. I've heard many, I can't say I've heard them all, but I've heard many. But there is always a common denominator. And that is there was a conviction of sin. A conviction of sin. And often it was one sin. Now, our sins are countless. But God may choose to use one thing that we suddenly realize, I am not right with God. I am filthy before God. I'm in trouble with God. I'm a criminal with God. And only the Holy Spirit can bring that about. You begin to realize the seriousness of sin, and you see it for what it is. It's an act of revolt against God, and you begin to feel like this man. And so it raises the question, under conviction, is change possible? The world says you are the way you are, and if you're wise and mature, you just accept it. And any idea of deep change is just deception. But the Bible says the change we need is not merely to accept ourselves, but to turn. To turn, that's the word repent. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, the word repent, it means have a change of mind, but it implies that you turn. It means turn from sin and turn to the one true God. So it deals with our past and that our past sins need to be forgiven. It deals with our present and that our present lives need to be reoriented. And it deals with our future and that our future destiny needs to be changed from the hell of God's judgment to the place where God has prepared for us in heaven. Now, two results. It tells us here that this man has met God, and the passage said he went home justified. He went home justified. 
One of the benefits of living in God's presence is when you really see God, you see yourself. And when you, when you see yourself, you see your sin. And when you see your sin, you cry out to God for grace and forgiveness, and you receive it. Let me give you some examples in the Bible. Job. Job is described in the scriptures as the most righteous man of his day. And when he suffered and suffered greatly, his friends came to him and they told him he was suffering severely because he had sinned badly. But Job denies it. He refused to accept that idea. And at the end of that book, he receives a vision of God and he repents in sackcloth and ashes. Seeing God, he sees himself, and seeing himself, he sees his sin, and seeing his sin, he cries out to God for grace and mercy and forgiveness, and he receives it. Isaiah was a prophet. He was the cream of the crop of the young men of his day. But in an hour of not only personal crisis, but national crisis, Isaiah is given a vision of God. And he says, woe is me, I am undone, I am a man of unclean lips. I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. What happened? When Isaiah saw God, he saw himself. And when he saw himself, he saw his sin. And when he saw his sin, he cried out to God for grace and mercy and forgiveness. And God gave it. So if you live daily in the presence of God, you will see your sin. And when you see your sin, you see your need of forgiveness. I had a man, he's gone to be with the Lord now, but a few years ago he said, why do we have these confession of sin when I come to church here? Why do we have that in the worship? He was a new Christian. And he said, why do we do that? I thought, why would we uh, become Christians? Our sins are forgiven. Why would we reconfess them? And talked to him about John 1.9, about, well, it's not as though Christ hasn't forgiven them, but appropriating God's forgiveness. It's a good question, right? But also as we see God, we're made aware again of our sin in our need for grace and mercy. We live in a day that guilt is not popular, or at least not the feelings of guilt. It's more important today to feel good about yourself than it is to feel bad about yourself if it's to bring about change. If you feel bad about yourself, then you say, well, something's wrong, you need to seek professional help. And so humbling ourselves is not popular. But God's grace cannot be found without humility. It's essential to receiving mercy. This is the point of the parable. You want to be free from guilt? Confess your sins to God with remorse and repentance. And then accept God's gift of forgiveness. When that happens, you are justified. That's why we read earlier as an affirmation of faith, justification, a declaration of righteousness, of the righteousness of Christ only and not our own righteousness. Last of all, R.C. Sproul in his book on Luke, he says, No one enters the kingdom of God on the basis of his own righteousness, because apart from Jesus, no human being has ever acquired enough righteousness to fulfill the absolute and perfect demands of the holy law of God. It is by grace and grace alone that we can have access into his presence. All of us stand guilty before the righteousness of God, whether we're Pharisee or tax collector alike. The difference between these two men was not that one was righteous and the other was a sinner. They both were sinners. The difference is that the tax collector knew he was a sinner and he repented of his sin. So Jesus is emphasizing here, are you looking away from yourself 
for justification? Are you trusting in your own life? Are you trusting in your own works? Or are you trusting in someone else, in the righteousness of Christ? We won't turn there, but in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus tells them another parable about the wedding banquet. And this large banquet is given by this king. And there's a first part of the parable, but late in the parable, all these people, large crowd is there for the banquet, for the wedding, to celebrate. And there's a man there, and he is not wearing wedding clothes. He is not wearing proper attire to be at this banquet. And the king comes in and sees him. And he sees this man who's wearing the wrong clothes. And he tells his servants, take him out and throw him out where there's darkness and gnashing of teeth. It's the biblical picture of hell. What is being said there? What is being said that if we try to enter God's presence on our good deeds, they are, as Isaiah said, as filthy rags. But the righteousness that Christ has attained by keeping the law in every respect are righteous garments, righteous clothing, as Ephesians and Colossians say, that we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So that is what we need. It's not just humility to see ourselves, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, but because of that, I can do nothing to achieve your, your forgiveness and your mercy. I need you to clothe me with the righteousness of Christ. And no human can bring that about in another. Are we aware of that at First Presbyterian? If anything, in the years I've been a Christian, have become true, it's only that God changes hearts. It's not preachers, it's not programs, it's not church buildings. It is only that God's Spirit touches someone. I didn't get John Kinzer's permission to say this, but I'm going to tell you a story. Is he here, John? Can I tell about the guy from Louisiana if I'm very general? John was at General Assembly a few years ago and sat down next to a man who at that time now, I believe, is an elder. He can correct me on the details later, but an elder in a uh, church in Louisiana. And they began to talk, and this man began to tell him about his testimony. And he had been uh, married and was very unfaithful to his wife in his sales job where he traveled all along the Gulf Coast. And it's almost a game to him, so it sounded. And he was very cocky and very uh, self-confident. And he told John that uh, the, the, the wife has, was a, uh, had gotten where she was going to a church. And the pastor preached the Bible, taught the gospel, preached the gospel. And she uh, pled with her husband and got him to go with her to sit down and talk to the preacher. And he thought he had great verbal finesse and could... He was in sales. He was in negotiations. So he thought, I'll, I'll win this guy over. He said, I could tell the preacher just sat back in his chair and he could see I was just uh, full of hot air. But he didn't say anything, but he could tell. I didn't know what I was talking about. He said, not only was I very unfaithful with a number of places where I would go, but I had a common-law wife. Am I getting too specific? All right. And the common-law wife lived to the north of where they were, about an hour, hour and a half away. So he, the preacher had gone through the gospel with him, and now this is some time later, and he's up there with the common-law wife that his wife knows nothing about. And they have, uh, they have just been intimate, and he goes to take a shower. And while he's in the shower, he said, I am filthy. He didn't mean externally. He said, I am filthy, and I need to be cleansed. 
And in that shower, he was converted. And he came out and he told this woman, you will never see me again, and told her what had happened. Well, what do you think happened on the hour and a half drive back to where he was from? She called his wife. So when he got back, all the front windows are open, the front door, all of his possessions are now being thrown into the front yard. And all the neighbors are out to watch this. And he drives up, and if I recall, he said, well, I knew what I was going to do. What do you think I did? I was in negotiations. I called that pastor and said, you've got to get over here. <laughs> Make a long story short, um, not only was their marriage restored, by the time John met him, he and his wife would speak in churches to couples about marriage and having Christian homes. Now, what brings that about? Can, can you produce that in another person? Can some persuasive preacher do that? No, only God's Spirit. That's why if you have not experienced this, and I would never make assumptions in a crowd this size, if you have not been convicted of your sin like this man, the tax collector, you can't generate that on your own. You can't say, well, I'm going to go sit down this afternoon and be convicted of my sin. No, you pray to God and say, Lord, if I am trusting in my own righteousness, I want to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Show me my need, and he will do it. For when you see God, you see yourself, and when you see yourself, you see your sin, and when you see your sin, you cry out to him for mercy and grace and forgiveness, and he gives it. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks and praise that, that we cannot, of our own works, and our own righteousness achieve um, perfection before you in forgiveness, but it is offered as a free gift because we, just like the tax collector and like the Pharisee, we are sinners. We have a need of your grace and mercy. We pray that we would know Christ in the fullness of his work, that we would be clothed in his righteousness, that we dare not try to enter your wedding banquet with our own a filthy rag zone, but only clothed in what he has done. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.